Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Alberta government has brought forward a bill that would punish people who protest at public infrastructure sites such as railways. What's the sense in having a new law if we can't enforce the ones we have? We speak with Ellis Ross again, MLA for Skeena, on how his community will benefit from the coastal gas link pipeline. And diplomats are warning the federal government they shouldn't get too tight with China. Is it too late for that? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Speaking on uh, Charles Adler tonight on Tuesday, former conservative MP and minister of heritage and uh, official uh, James Moore said uh, he suggested Canada's premiers get on the same page as Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney in introducing legislation uh, to fine people who uh, blockade or damage critical infrastructure like pipelines and railways. Um, I'm not sure what good that is going to do, considering we don't seem to be enforcing the ones we have now. Uh, Here is a clip from that show provinces and territories, those premiers and the prime minister and the justice minister get together in a room. They can all, or we can easily arrange this inside of 48 hours, get together in a room and have continuity across all 13 provinces and territories of powers that police need that will be charter proofs that we can protect people and obey and have the law enforced in this country. All right, to talk more about all of this, uh, in this in regard to Alberta, uh, government bringing forward a bill that would punish people who protect public infrastructure sites, uh, uh, who protest, sorry, at public infrastructure sites. Uh, And again, um, I'm not sure that's a lot different than what is supposed to be in place now. Does this bill potentially infringe on Charter of Rights to Protest? Uh, Let's bring in Ari Goldkind, Toronto defense lawyer. He is with us now. Ari, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. What do you need me for, Scott Thompson? You literally just answered the question. Nice to talk to you. Have a good day. So really, at the end of the day, what's the sense of bringing in a new law to this? Uh, Politics. For anybody who who wonders that this isn't purely, completely political with muscular, and I use that term very loosely, muscular politicians wanting to look like they're doing something, that is all this is. The laws are already on the books. There is no charter right that allows you to physically impede or interfere with lawful activities, particularly on public or private property. It doesn't even matter. Uh, the freedom of expression and assembly, which many people talk about because we know Canada has very sadly become a country of rights, 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 and everybody grieving and making claims and such, and there's no responsibilities. These laws are on the books and just in the criminal code. The law couldn't be simpler. Mischief interfere with property. So it's there. Uh, there are absolutely the laws on the books today. Anybody who thinks this is a novel situation, you're absolutely wrong. This is not novel. The courts have done and done away with this as a controversial issue, even a case in Guelph. I'm trying to make this as close to you. From 2009, out of the Superior Court there, a judge was very clear you can protest, you can assemble, you can express yourself, you can hate the government, you can want reconciliation, but you cannot block or interfere with lawful activities. And this is simply, and Scott, you hit the nail on the head, this has much to do with police not wanting to own this or end up on YouTube pushing somebody in a mask who just emerged from their mother's basement, who many of them are not even Indigenous, but nobody wants to wear this because they don't want to be called a certain name. And that's what is happening in Alberta. But the, qu- the clip you just played is absolutely right. If the premiers wanted to get together because feckless Trudeau continues to be feckless, there's nothing wrong with politicians sending the message that they're not going to put up with this. Uh, in uh, the way things stand right now and the way the protests have continued into uh, almost the third week here now, um, what is the law? What is who's obeying the law? Who isn't? Because we're hearing that we have the right to this. We have the right to that. You're on our land, blah, blah, blah. Uh, who does own the land or responsible for the land around that, for example, railway line near Belleville? The railway operators, CN, uh, own certain lines via. This is why there was specific legislation about the railways and that infrastructure, whether it be the 401 it's the government, it's the 407, that's another stupid story, but we'll leave the 407 aside. But this stuff about it's our land and you have to do this, and you know, it's sort of like when you go to these 
festivals and premieres, you know, there's that three-minute speech, we're privileged to be on the land of the list and that. Without getting into the politics, that does not make it legal. And if you want to get wonky right into the law, again, with the Charter, something can be infringed. Something, you know, you can infringe a right. You can infringe on freedom of religion. You can infringe on freedom of expression and assembly and all these other freedoms. And in Canada, the word is, again, rights, 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 rights. There's a section in the criminal code, in the uh, Charter, that allows those things to be overridden when there's a compelling and reason to. The idea that 30 people last night can block a GO train and tens of thousands of of people who, many of whom don't have cars, by the way, so there's no alternative route to work, that those 30 people, many of whom are not Indigenous, let's be very clear about these matters. Well, especially, specifically in regard to the protest that was set up in Hamilton, I mean, uh, it was gone as quick as it went up, uh, because there, you know, I mean, rumor has it that this is the same group that was, an anarchist group that was responsible for beating up Lock Street a few years ago. Uh, If they were Indigenous, if they were Indigenous peoples, they'd still be there, would they not? Well, yeah, first of all, Scott, let's be honest about this, because Because, you know, media are very careful to not want to get called a name. And, you know, truth is a very rare commodity. This is not actually the wish of these indigenous people. This is the wish of 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 rabble-rousers who have their own agenda. And they are going against the agenda of the very bands and tribes and groups that they aspire to to have their name in the paper. Nobody seems to be giving the same attention to the chiefs who say, "Uh, no, we've been consulted for 10 to 15 years. This is what we voted on. So the idea that this is something that Canadians should be misled, that this is something about Indigenous rights. This is anarchy. This is Antifa. This is rabble-rousing. By the way, Scott, I have to say with some credit, it is absolutely working. Yeah, they yeah, have yeah. shown yeah. that this works. That's one of the reasons I feel so bad for cops, because cops want to get in there and end it the way they did in the middle of the night last night. But in our stupid day and age where one person goes on to Twitter and lobs the R word, the cops then have to go on to the defensive. But this is absolutely, and this is something I was talking about yesterday with this very issue. This is not an indigenous story. This is a story of anarchy, and if it truly was, you well know, Scott, you well know throughout Canada the sympathy people have to the plight of the Indigenous, the sympathy and hope that everybody starts to reconcile and move along. You know, some people say this is about climate alarmism and all that. No, you look at Greta Thunberg. She brought millions of people to her cause. All these 30 to 40 people are doing is the opposite of any legitimate or decent cause. Well, I think one of the reasons the Prime Minister is reluctant to uh, to show leadership here is because it's less about the Indigenous community. There's a separate issue there in regard to treaties and such, which has to be dealt with. But the, the Prime Minister's office refuses to, or is acting slow on this, because it's environmentalists who are behind this. It's anti-pipeline protesters, which is a key segment of the vote they're trying to to uh, to trying to secure. So, you know, again, as you mentioned, who's asking the majority of the indigenous communities along the route that support this? Who's asking what their opinion is? And, you know, I, I've got Ellis Ross coming up, LA, MLA for Skeena, who talks who's supporting of the pipeline and says that this is bringing uh, opportunity and hope and a future to his community uh, in the form of jobs and such. And yet nobody's talking about that. Well, because, okay, Scott, so that's sort of the point I was just making a moment ago where I said... And I think because of the, I think it's because of the environmentalist overtones here that Prime Minister, the Prime Minister is walking a fine line here between trying to build a pipeline and keeping in the environment sector, uh, the environmentalists happy. And as soon as it's latched on to an indigenous issue, look out, all of a sudden it changes somehow. Okay, but here's, here's the thing, and I don't know how much time we have, but one of the things that's been happening in this story, and again, I'm a person who's very interested in truth. I don't care whose feelings are hurt. Facts trump feelings. There has been a conflating of issues here. There's been a mixing up of issues under the auspices of this. And when you say the prime minister is having trouble with leadership, well, that that happens from the time he wakes up to the time he goes to bed, unless it's on the pot file. It's the one thing he's actually gotten correct. So 
the idea that this is somehow tied into the environment is just the weakest of arguments. There are 900 other ways if you're truly concerned about the environment, if you truly want to make a coalition, if you want to wake up Canadians to this idea that something is bad, telling them that 15 to 20 people aren't going to be touched by cops, which, by the way, this is what cops are paid to do. This is what they're paid to do, that 15 to 20 people can ruin the work jobs, the via rail employees. We don't talk enough about Scott. Let, let's just spend 10 seconds talking about how thousands of people have been laid off. And somehow in Canada, where there are laws on the books that this shouldn't happen, that's okay. It's okay that they lose their jobs. So nobody should mix in climate alarmism to what these people are doing. These are professional rabble-rousers who don't have a cause and they don't have a clue. Uh, my point was uh, two of the biggest segments of the prime minister's uh, uh, vote came from the indigenous community and environmentalists. And he's caught right between the middle of them. And I- I'm thinking one of the reasons that he is slow to act on this is because he doesn't want to irritate the environmentalists who are on the same page as this limited amount of wet sweatin. I'm not so sure I'd agree with that, Scott. If you look at the numbers, this is not a voting segment for Trudeau that is any more important than the hundreds of thousands of Canadians that have had their trains cancelled, their ability to get to work cancelled. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't really really accept that. If you want to go to the brass tacks of this into the politics, Scott, because this is not a legal story. I know that the charter comes up and freedom of expression and assembly. These are politicians. Maybe Mr. Kenny notwithstanding, I use the term notwithstanding for those who know the law with wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Doug Ford should also be standing with uh, Jason Kenney on this. These are politicians who don't want to take a relatively complicated, heated situation. And if something went wrong when people were arrested, if the video on YouTube goes out where somebody's roughed up Mm -hmm. or something goes on, no politician wants to wear it. And, Scott, I know that sounds simple and trite. No, I I believe that 100 percent. But I also I also believe that this is a federal issue. And I think what the federal liberal government is doing, and we saw this on the news last night, is pushing this responsibility onto the NDP government in British Columbia and the Ontario Conservative government. I mean, come on. This is a federal issue. This is the prime minister that stood behind 98 uh, Truth and Reconciliation recommendations and said he would try to honor them all. I mean, let's be realistic here. He He promises the world and then has problems delivering. He overpromises and underdelivers. He's Justin Trudeau, Scott Thompson. What, what, does anybody suddenly <laughs> think he's a Rhodes Scholar? I mean, this, I mean, he's a nice man. He's a good father, a great husband. And by the way, that's worth a lot. But anybody who doesn't think that he's sort of an empty suit, and I say that in a nice way, he's a very decent guy, but this is not Bill Clinton. This is yeah. not Barack Obama. People need to stop pretending that Justin Trudeau is going to come up with some magical solution that isn't given to him by the person who was the prime minister. His name is Jerry Butts. And once that went, there's no leadership. So yeah. you're talking about a country that has a vacuum. And remember, Scott, let's, let's be very clear. 30 to 40 people who are breaking the law are winning over the entire audience who can't get to work, are losing their jobs. And by the way, the indigenous tribes that have been consulted for 10 to 15 years and voted and said, we want those things. This is just banana republic-like. So what should the prime minister do? The prime or, minister or is it up to local government just to go in there and, and fix this mess? I think this is one phone call between the premiers and the prime minister where they all say, look, we're all, we'll all wear this. We'll all wear this. Not one person, not some island unto himself yeah. like Kenny. This is not complicated. And by the way, The best thing for Trudeau to do was to stand up and show some leadership. He would not lose Canadians' vote. Jagmeet Singh has a ridiculous position on this. And what kind of world do we live in where the prime minister of our country in a democracy, who's constantly lecturing and hectoring us, says to Andrew Scheer, you can't come in a meeting and you can't be part of this because you're ordering the blockades down. 48 hours later, he reads off Scheer's script. There's a problem And the problem is, is that the people who shouldn't be winning, Scott, 
and this is a constant societal problem, the people that shouldn't be winning over the ordinary average Canadian who wants to go to work, take their kids to childcare, uh, make a living, go home, live peacefully, that Canadian is losing to the masked 25 people on the tracks. Ari Goldkind's been with us, Toronto defense lawyer, talking about the Alberta, Alberta government bringing forward a bill that would punish people who protest at public infrastructure sites. Ari, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to bring in Ellis Ross again, MLA for Skeena and uh, elected band council. Uh, member as well and uh, we've chatted uh, in the past with uh, Ellis and he is representing the majority of those in this indigenous community that actually want this pipeline because it will pull them out of poverty and and uh, guarantee a future for for uh, youth in in the area uh, fascinating though last night on uh, one of the news shows Ellis Ross and uh, a person by the name of Pam Palmiter she is a university professor at Ryerson who uh, teaches indigenous studies uh, we're debating uh, this whole situation and it was amazing on how two completely opposite ends of the spectrum they they were and the reason I've asked Ellis Ross back on is you know, I really thought that, that this uh, person blew him off and and, and sort of uh, created the scenario that uh, that what he was saying was just bogus. So, ML, uh, and by the way, we have reached out to uh, Pam Palmiter several times over the last weeks uh, on this and have not returned, uh, she, uh, have not heard any uh, call back from her. Uh, so, Ellis Ross is with us, uh, MLA for Skeena and on the line now. Ellis, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. So I was watching you on uh, CTV Newsnet last night and Power Play and uh, the debate you were having with Pam Palmiter. Um, how do you explain the two of you being on so opposite ends of this discussion? Well, number one, I was told to begin with it was going to be a respectful debate. And right out of the gates, it, it didn't turn out like that. And I, and I can I can take any kind of position and opinion from anybody. I don't care if they oppose me or not. But once you start to disrespect the, the, the approach my people have taken, my community, my band members, and what we're trying to do in terms of getting out of, away from poverty and anything like that, then I will give you the same amount of respect you're showing me. So then it, it, it wasn't my greatest moment, but uh, what I'm doing is, is a, a fight worth fighting for, in my opinion. Do you get the feeling that she is trying to muzzle those like you and those who are trying to defend your community who are in the majority and who want this? You know, she, she said something later, like she shifted the conversation to uh, climate change, when really the, the topic I was told was going to be reconciliation. Is the blockades hindering or helping? Yeah. And uh, I have an opinion on reconciliation as well. But there's a dangerous narrative coming out from Aboriginal leaders all across uh, Canada now. No, I know I'm talking about community leaders, by the way. I'm talking about the UNDBC chiefs. I'm talking about uh, NDP candidate uh, Bob Chamberlain. And something that Pam Palmer said that kind of, you know, it, it kind of struck me. Why are we trying to take away the ability of communities to negotiate with companies and government in their own right based on Aboriginal title? That actually contradicts rights and title case law. It, 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 I, I don't know. I don't get why we're trying to undermine and take away the right for communities to negotiate when it's established in case law that rabbers' rights and title is held on behalf of the communities. What's in it? What's in it for these people who are uh, saying exactly what you are saying? Because, in fact, as if we're to believe what you're saying, this is helping indigenous people. So, what's in it for the Pams of the world? I have no idea, but over the years, you know, I stopped going to these uh, these uh, provincial and national meetings and going to these Aboriginal organizations that purported to speak on behalf of Aboriginals because they never offered a solution for average Aboriginals. It was always about getting more funding for their own organizations or you know, more funding for their own salaries or lawyers, and I found this out a long time ago. And so I, I disconnected myself from all that, and I went back to uh, basically what is good for my band members who are, want to live uh, outside of the Indian Act and want to get away from poverty and want just a good life. 
so that's where I took my my uh, direction from. So, who represents the majority of the indigenous community? Would it be hereditary chiefs or elected band council, such as yourself? It depends on the community. In fact, a lot of band councils I've worked over the years, elected band councils, there were hereditary chiefs and band councils, including my own. But really, it, every community has its different leadership structure. Two two hundred three bands in BC. Mm-hmm. I mean. And up to now, they haven't had a problem. But what you find is that some outside interests are trying to find that little bit of seed of discontent, and then they magnify it, and they, have, they don't care if they divide our communities. They don't care if they keep us under the Internet. They've they, they got agendas other than what these community leaders are trying to achieve. Uh, it seems that there's uh, the the band councils, the elected band councils, such as yourself, uh, go through the process. Uh, you know, you said last night when someone said uh, uh, a reconciliation is dead, you said, well, it's been going on for 15 years with various projects that, that those that want to are, are moving forward on. Um, is it possible, it seems that the, the elected band council works towards something, gets approvals, does environmental assessment, whatever you need to do, and as you explained before, uh, the Indigenous community very much a part of that uh, environmental assessment and such. And then all of a sudden, at the, in the 11th hour, something happens to, to throw this off the rails. Is it possible, or is it impossible within that structure of the community to have one voice or at least a majority or unification on this? I mean, are the majority of the people being heard here? Well, the majority have been heard for the last 15 years. And uh, the reconciliation is actually a definition of the case law. That's where I got my definition. And then people are, are using that term reconciliation for their own terms. As for the unification, no, you're not going to get it. At best, you got to look for the majority. In fact, when I was a chief counselor, I went to one of our matriarchs in our, our village and I asked him, so, so how do I unite my village? And this matriarch told me, you can't. You never will unite this yeah. village. That's, that's not how communities are. And this, this woman who passed away now had so much wisdom. And she was actually the matriarch to the head chief in our village, our herder chief. Right. Well, actually, when I became chief, stopped me in the parking lot of our council office, called me over and told me, look, I support whatever you're doing. Keep it up. And don't call me unless you need me. Hmm. <laughs> and, and that's the direction I took. And I did call him for when we had to celebrate some of the achievements that we did, like gaining our, some of our land back, getting jobs for our people, getting revenues. I called them to help us celebrate and actually represent us. So, yeah, there's a way to do it, but we don't need outsiders fiddling with us and manipulating us for their own agendas. Uh, and by that, you mean environmentalists? I mean everybody that, yeah. that you know comes out of the woodwork and just tries to distort rights and title and tries to break apart our communities because... Our communities, we don't need that. It's so easy to break apart members of the community. And that, that's not right. We shouldn't do that. Do the majority of the Indigenous community support your point of view? Uh, th- th- that's the thing about it. Is, uh, I know the majority of uh, my community members do it. and um, But even if they did, a lot of Aboriginal members don't like to speak out. Yeah. Even Aboriginal leaders don't like to speak out. It, this is something that's not in our nature. Is that why more aren't speaking up in support of this issue? Yeah, if they do speak up in support, it's, it's very quietly, it's in very measured tones, uh, and they try not. They try to balance the the, the notion of uh, not angering uh, all the Aboriginals in BC, let alone their own community. So, they, so they're trying to walk a real tight line between that. Uh, I'm not in that boat because I've uh, I've seen the life of poverty and the violence of poverty. I've lived it, and I've also seen the reverse in my community over the last five, six, seven years now, where the next generation has jobs and opportunity, and they could care less about the issues that we faced uh, back when I was a young man. So I've seen both sides, and I would pick uh, the, the future that we're actually embracing right now. What should the Prime Minister be doing here? Oh, that's a good question. You know, it's there's been a few years now of identity politics and uh, virtue signaling, and this uh, I don't think it's going to get any better because of the expectations of the uh, UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, that actually basically it almost ignores uh, the Aboriginal Rights and Child case law that's been established in the courts of Canada, BC, over the last 38 years. I mean, it ignores so many things. And you know, the, 
the one thing it does ignore that, that frustrates me is the definition of reconciliation. Recon- the definition of reconciliation in, in all the court cases, Dalgamuhaida and all these other court cases, is uh, look, we've got to consult and accommodate First Nations interests above and beyond. We've got to do our best. That's the honor of the Crown. But we've got to bring the two societies together because let's face it, nobody's going anywhere. And ha- sorry. The crown, but the Crown has got to make a decision at the end of the day that addresses rights and titles, but also takes into consideration the larger society that we deal with. And, and when you think about that, the largest society that that judge was talking about now includes First Nations, because we all enjoy the hospitals, the roads, the infrastructure, the services of Canada. So the, 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 the idea of reconciliation has been used by too many different people organizations for different agendas. Hmm. Um, do hereditary chiefs uh, do hereditary chiefs recognize uh, the decisions of the elected band council? Do they recognize the the voices of the majority? Yeah, that goes by community by community. So that depends. Mm-hmm. That depends on the community. Uh, for a community like mine, yes. Uh, but uh, we went through this where the hereditary chiefs were actually uh, manipulated by outside forces. And it was actually a court case that came out of it in terms of libel. And my dad was part of that organization. And when I got a letter in my council office one day, and then my dad had signed it, you know, accusing us of treason, accusing us of taking bribes, I took that letter down to my dad, and I told him, do you realize you just accused me of taking bribes? And he said, no, I didn't. I asked you for an update on treaty and the graveyard. That is not what this letter says. My dad was a smart man. He could do crosswords and pen, hmm. but he couldn't put these words together in an official legal looking document. And this is what these outsiders did. And my community was ripped apart right down to family and friends. And so people don't understand that what you're saying is actually not only it's holding back First Nations, keeping us under the Indian Act, keeping us under poverty, but you, you have the potential to destroy communities. And it, this is not ethical, it's not moral, it's not right. So what do the pampometers of the world want that you don't, or vice versa? Uh, well, according to what she said, uh, it doesn't matter how many communities sign on to these agreements, whether it be 20 or 100. Uh, they're, they're basically invalid, is, is what I got out of what she said. And she didn't want to talk about reconciliation. She wanted to talk about uh, any projects that's not sustainable because, uh, because of climate change. I mean, I wasn't called in that show to debate climate change. I was called in that show to debate reconciliation. Hmm. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what she wants. And it didn't appear that she wanted to talk to you about the issues that are closest to you, and that being raising your community out of poverty and giving hope and a future for the youth. No, and I get that a lot. I get that from Aboriginal leaders. Uh, I get that from a union of BC and Chief Stuart Phillip. Uh, I get that from the federal NDP candidate, Bob Chamberlain. Nobody really wants to talk about the issues that these First Nations leaders are trying to resolve and been trying to resolve like for decades. And finally, my community and other communities found a solution. And it's working. It, the next generation has actually got jobs. They're going on vacation. They're getting cars and houses. And they're, they're kind of getting half the lifestyle of what some of these leaders are getting. And the, you think about all these leaders. And when I was talking about that, I wasn't talking about hereditary leaders or chief counselors in terms of their salaries. I was talking about the people that purport to represent First Nations people across Canada, B.C. Great salaries, getting great speaking fees, and they got nice houses, and they got nice salaries and pension plans and everything else. And yet, they want to keep the rest of Aboriginals under the Indian Act, living in poverty. Well, that's, from my point of view, what we should be thinking about from the ground up is how do we get First Nations out of poverty? How do we get them out of the Indian Act? I'm not going to start from the top down. I don't, I don't think those need, leaders need any help in terms of their revenues or their houses or their cars. I want to get Aboriginals to half the level of standard of living and what they're enjoying. Um, what do those leaders want or expect from the youth without these opportunities? I have no idea. You know, Stuart Phillip from Union BC Indian Chief said uh, that the benefits from LNG going to First Nations is a fallacy. And I've been at this LNG from day one, 2004. It was actually my band that actually brought this opportunity to BC. And now, for the last five or six years, 
I've got a generation of Aboriginals that are working, that are getting mortgages and getting cars and going on vacation. So to say that there's no benefits coming to us, as either as individual band members or as an organization, the elected chief and council is taking those revenues and putting it back into culture and language programs, building our own infrastructure, building our own apartments, and, you know, building our own docks and our own breakwaters. Hmm. I mean, you know, do some research before you make a statement like that. Is your message gaining momentum, Ellis? That or do you feel, or do you, or do you feel like it's getting lost? It, it's hard to say. You know, I'm, I'm getting tremendous amount of support from all, all over uh, Canada, from Aboriginals and non-Aboriginals, but I'm getting, I'm getting pushback from uh, Aboriginals that actually oppose everything I'm saying and doing. So it's really hard to measure whether or not this this message is getting out. What about others that can join you and spread this message? Is that possible? Uh, there, there is actually, uh, but to, to spread this message takes incredible courage, and I don't yeah. blame these leaders who mm-hmm. don't want to stand up and fight. But I, I listened to a, a uh, an older Aboriginal gentleman the other night at the Mining Association reception here in Victoria. His name is Jerry Asp, and I don't, I don't idolize anybody. I don't adore anybody. I never looked up to anybody. Uh, it was just the way I was raised. But I was so humbled. I didn't even feel like I had the honor of being in the same space as him because what he said at that at that uh, reception, it moved me so much because what he did was take the tall time people out of poverty in 1987. That's when his journey started. Now, this was before Aboriginal rights and title had been fully established. And now you're saying, you know, back when I started, we had 98% unemployment. Now we got 0% unemployment. And it even it even floored me later on when I went to talk to him later. I shook his hand and I told him, you, you know, you you really impressed me. And he said, you know, I was wondering when we we're going to meet because I because I listened to you and I heard you. And by the way, I'm just like you. Hmm. I used to be I used to be a fall down drunk too. Hmm. And then then I I picked myself up, I cleaned myself off, and I turned around and I decided to help my people. Now, this guy should get the order of Canada. He should get the order of BC. That was just an incredible, because he, he he had a heart for his people. He didn't care about himself. He didn't care about the Assembly of First Nations or Union BC and the Chiefs or all these other. He didn't care about that. He cared about his people. And this, this is who we should be putting up in the spotlight. Ellis Ross has been with us, MLA for Skeena. Ellis, as always, thanks so much for the time and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Good luck. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Diplomats are warning the federal government that they shouldn't get too tight with China. Uh, And as you may remember, uh, it seems China has been the golden goose for decades. Now, of course, things have changed quite a bit with the uh, Huawei CFO being detained and also the two Michaels uh, being detained in China. Although (laughs) the difference in both of those detainments are... Are, are quite extreme. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. He is with us now. Uh, th- Gordon, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Uh, for details, it seems that we've uh, bent over backwards trying to appease China to get a piece of, of the golden goose here. Were we naive to overlook that they are ruled by the Communist Party of China? Well, that fact should never have been overlooked. And uh, I served in government, working on China for 22 years within government, and uh, I I certainly didn't lose track of that fact. Um, One can chew gum and walk at the same time, in my view. There's no problem with selling things to China, buying things from China. You don't have to lose sight about they've got a very different system, a communist dictatorship, um, government-organized economy to a much greater extent than is the case in Canada. Other countries do that. China, U.S., Germany, Japan, U.K., France, Italy, Australia, those are all major trading partners of China. That doesn't mean you should or must be naive. So where has Canada gone wrong? How have we misplayed this? Well, I think, and this is, I think, part of the fact that we are generally well disposed to a country that lives, has lived very comfortably, at least since the 1940s under the security protection in the United States. We lived in an economy, global economy, where the WTO played a really crucial role, and we're super dependent on trade. 
things are breaking down now. Uh, I don't think the U.S. particularly values allies now. China has gone from being poor and weak to being relatively rich and strong. And those certainties of ally, ally, ally relationships and of uh, trading, free trade, are beginning to crumble as well. So it leaves us, I think, in a really tricky spot. Uh, former CSIS director, and this is out of a CBC article, uh, Richard Fadden warned uh, in an interview back in 2010 that China was seeking to infiltrate and influence Canadian institutions, including provincial and local governments and universities. Have they done that? Well, I think there's no doubt about that uh, over the course of decades, um, Dick, you know, Dick Fadden noted this. It's not something brand new. It's something that needs to be watched. To me, it's like crabgrass. It keeps reoccurring. You have to pull it up and then it goes away for a while, and then it comes back. Um, but I would argue you don't want to pitch your entire China policy on, say, CSIS, no more than you want to pitch it just on the Ministry of Department of International Trade. These are all factors. And the tricky thing for a cabinet or a PM is how do you do a balance? Um, the United States is fighting that right now. They've got the Pentagon's very worried about the rise of Chinese military, and yet you have... Uh, President Trump very much wanting to have a strong re- export relationship with China. Um, both of those are problematic. It's, China is a very unique challenge. It's not the Soviet Union, certainly not Nazi Germany. It's something new and different that is also challenging, but in very different ways. Uh, your thoughts on Canada's ambassador to China, Ambassador Barton. Uh, one Chinese expert has said that uh, that he uh, echoes is an echo of Chinese propaganda. Um, uh, Barton said in a, a said of the Chinese people that quote they are a, a place of imp- an important value on put sorry let me try it again they place an importance on the values of collectivism and harmony owing to a Confucian heritage understanding the extent to which China values unity and the needs of society at large rather than the freedom of the individual choice we just have to understand that uh, Charles Burton who we've had on this show from Brock University former diplomat and and has been an ambassador to China. Uh, said that he was taken back by these comments. He says, quote, let me point out that this assertion by our ambassador is consistent with the official propaganda of the Chinese Communist Party uh, and uh, as well in the modern age uh, is a non-democratic single party autocratic rule. I could not disagree more with his interpretation. Your thoughts on the ambassador? Well, I think part of the problem is that you can take things out of context. Um, Just a minor point. Um, Charles Burton, I know well. In fact, I was the one who selected him to go to Beijing on his second assignment as an academic visitor. Uh, He was not an ambassador, but he worked in the political section as an academic visitor. He's a good guy, knowledgeable. Ambassador Barton has deep, deep knowledge of China. Mm -hmm. And if you look at, if you don't take that one sentence out of context, I actually think what he says is right. Chinese have a different viewpoint. They tend to be more collectively oriented, and they're powerfully influenced by Confucianism, as is Taiwan, as is Japan, as is Korea. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, uh, China doesn't yield to a really simple analysis. Uh, it's complicated. Ambassador Barton will have to and will, in my view. I met him several times, briefed him in September. He came here to the China Institute in, in January. I met him again, and I've spoken to him several times on the phone. Uh, he will have to sing and adopt whatever is aligned to the government of Canada. That's the way ambassadors work. Um, and I think you have to look at what he says. Subsequent to his posting, he was a business person working in China before. He had long experience. And I guarantee you, for me, I'm now in my 34th year of working in China. If you took every single thing I've written or said and cherry-picked it, you could make me look really, really dumb. (laughs) (laughs) And there's always the risk. It's a complicated place. There's much that is to be admired, moving all those people out of poverty. There's much to be criticized, surveillance, treatment of folks in Xinjiang, etc. I'm wary of really simplistic views of China that don't end up being, and the way I used to brief ministers was, um, minister, it's complicated on the one hand, on the other hand, and I think when you make a sort of a cartoon version of China, it's not going to work. What are the concerns doing business moving forward? Well, the problem we have, which must be solved, is the question of the detainees. Without that, and there can be no normalization. I mean, everything's going to be, I mean, there might be little baby steps or this and that. They start buying beef again, et cetera. That's all good. 
But we can't just forget those two uh, stuck in Chinese jail. And for the Chinese, they're not about to forget Madame Meng. So I fear that for the time being and going forward, as I don't see any quick exit from that, uh, we're stuck. And uh, what we'll be able to do will be basically on the margins. So we need to look elsewhere, Japan, India, and do other things while biding our time for when we can re-engage more substantively. That doesn't mean we shouldn't stop our current exports. Um, there's no replacement market for canola. Uh, those farmers are going to accept uh, lower prices um, or sow other crops uh, for timber. Uh, similarly, there's no easy replacement. China's got some unique characteristics. For lobster, our lobster fishermen are now hurting yeah. because the U.S. has lifted their tariffs on lobsters and to the degree to which Chinese can buy lobsters if they're not in quarantine, they are just as likely to buy American ones. So, and we still have to compete with with U.S. leads the charge against China, but they also cut deals, which hurt us. So I'd say eyes wide open, uh, be pragmatic, avoid really simplistic simplistic assumptions. But for the short term, medium term, maybe we're we're, loot, we're hooped. How do you balance that and the two Michaels? Uh, do we just are we just at the point, meaning Canada, that we just wait and see for them to do something, for them to offer, for them to uh, uh, provide a solution, or does Canada aggressively go after the release of these two? Well, I would be all for aggressively going after the release if I thought it would achieve something, but uh, we've got very short levers when compared to China. Um, the Hmong case, which is the key for China, is locked in our courts. Uh, we are loath to interfere. There is a mechanism to interfere through the Minister of Justice. But if we don't do that, it's a question of just waiting out the the court and the likely appeals. That could be a very long time. So going aggressively after the Michaels might make us feel better, but won't necessarily accomplish anything. My view is we need to continue to trade, but there won't be much else happening. I mean, there's been no ministerial visits. There's almost uh, there used to be a crowded calendar. The embassy was was packed with visitors. Not, but this is before coronavirus. But after the um, and before the the two Michaels, things are really at a standstill now. Our visa sections are closed. The embassy's almost shut down, thanks to coronavirus. But even after that, uh, I don't think we're going to get back to normal or near normal until those two cases are solved. They will be solved. Um, but I couldn't put a timeline on it, sadly. Uh, this started with diplomats warning that the federal government shouldn't get too tight with China. Are we too interwoven now to retreat? Well, I don't think we can basically create a war situation where we have nothing to do. We ban all trade. Um, watch inflation take hold in Canada if we cut off all Chinese imports, which are generally of decent quality and low price, uh, are... Uh, there are really important agricultural ex, uh, export destination for us. I don't see an advantage in reducing the relationship to an absolute zero. Uh, we've got uh, 170,000 students in this country who contribute hundred Chinese students, that is, hundreds of millions of dollars to our coffers, not just in their student fees, but in the, in the money they spend. That's a services export that does us that we do quite well by. I would say. We limp along, keeping the wheels turning, uh, but not um, have any pretense to a friendly, upbeat relationship until our two young men are home. Uh, is it just a matter of time before China controls more or most, well, I guess they do now, of Canada's economy? I mean, will we become dependent on them? There is a danger there, and uh, it's more acute for Australia. I mean, China, even before this late, latest mess, was and is roughly about 4.5% of our exports. For Australia, it's almost 40%. Um, and in terms of investment in this country, U.S. and European investment dwarfs that of China. And my institute tracks very closely Chinese incoming investment, and it's dropped off dramatically, even before the Michaels. In 1918 and 19, and so far this year, uh, we're seeing very low levels of investment since before. So we're hardly about to be an economic colony of China. We're much more an economic appendage in the United States. That, that's probably not going to change. And in many ways, it's a good thing. There are 75% of our exports go there. If it wasn't for the United States, we'd be really in a difficult spot. So I'm not worried about economic dependence on China. But on the other hand, we who are export dependent 
if we ignore a second, perhaps soon to be the largest economy on earth completely. No, you can't trade for them, you can't import or export. That hurts us and others, including our allies, like the United States, Germany, UK, France. They'll fill that void in a flash. Uh, you mentioned Australia. I've also seen New Zealand in in uh, papers that I've read in regard to uh, Chinese involvement in their economy. What has that part of the world done that uh, perhaps we should be very observant of? Well, I think they're in a difficult position, as I mentioned earlier. They when they when they then um, when Britain joined the European Community, uh, Australia and New Zealand were realized finally that they were not going to be a key part of the European economy and had to really thrash about in a hurry and rely on the United States, but also on Asia. And they they have a, a big dependency on the China market, especially New Zealand, uh, which sends a bulk of its agricultural exports to, to China. They do really well by that. Um, so, do, so do the Australians. But, it, but that level of dependence does come with an element of over-reliance, and uh, you know, if, if you're at 40%, uh, you're in a difficult position. We're at 4.5. I don't lie asleep at night waiting and worrying about that. 40% is nervous-making. I think even Australia has begun to take steps to perhaps diversify a little bit more than they have already with other Asian neighbors and other countries. They still are, in security terms, linked to the United States. That's not about to change. But that level of dependency economically is a very different thing if it's a country like China than what we face. So what is the what is the sweet spot? What is the happy number? We want investment, but at what point does it become a threat? At what point does it gain too much control? I would say we need to, A, examine every investment very carefully, make sure it's made public, and look even more closely at the sector it's in. I'll give you, for example, as a, a relatively small investment, I think $50 million in Edmonton that takes... Chinese, um, takes Alberta wheat, barley, chicken, beef, and makes pot stickers and other things, exports some, sells some in Canada, the United States, some goes to Asia. That generates jobs, uses our products, upgrades our products. That's all good. I don't see any threat from that. On the other hand, if you're in a small high-tech company where the IP might disappear down an electron tube uh, or cable or be put on a USB, that's a different story. And in strategic sectors like nuclear, key parts of our economy, those have to be examined very, very closely to make sure that we're not uh, um, endangering or compromising our own security. Uh, And so I'd say it depends on the investment, uh, what is problematic and what isn't. Can't let you go without asking you uh, your thoughts on where we are with the coronavirus. How much will uh, this debilitate China? How much will this debilitate the world from an economic point of view? Well, I must confess I'm not optimistic. In fact, last week I basically concluded, as did others, that, as many others, that um, we were looking at, in effect, a pandemic. I was in Beijing and the embassy managing our response to SARS, not um, because I was a virologist, but because I was the deputy head of mission at the time. And we had our hands full. China's economy took a big dip, and we in Canada got hit hard, uh, more or less 50 dead, if I recall correctly, Hong Kong. Taipei also got hit. But this has got, while less deadly, this is a really easy-to-transmit disease that is already hitting a lot of countries. And I fear that there's many countries in which it's present. We haven't heard about it yet. So this is going to hit China hard. Ironically, I think they will emerge from this, and perhaps in the second quarter or at the end of the second quarter when it recedes. Then there will be a considerable rebound. But their numbers for this quarter economic, for this quarter economic, it may be close to zero, even negative. And it's really going to knock their supposed 6% increase this year to, I would not be surprised if it's half that. We'll see what the numbers say and what is the actual, actual reality. But this is a global threat and it's impacting us already. Our airlines, price of oil for this province, Alberta, has been, is being hard hit. And, and for the rest of Canada, I would say, if you're exporting commodities, and that would be true of Ontario and Quebec, certainly, NBC, uh, China takes over half the global trade in iron ore, zinc, copper, etc. So if the Chinese economy slows down for, for an extended period, 
watch out because we are a commodity-dependent country and our prices will drop significantly. Even if we don't export to China, the global demand will drop and, and we will suffer. Uh, what has China learned from this, do you think? Well, there's a couple lessons they learned and a couple they didn't. They partially learned the lesson of openness, partially. And with SARS, they went for months and months. We had in the embassy something we called the rumor squad that went out on foot and by car and on bicycle to try and find out whether the stories about someone in a hazmat suit having seen near the PLA hospital, whether that was true or not, actually turned out to be true. Um, and, and they learned that the Chinese government learned they had to be more open. They were late in being open is the problem. So they semi-learned that lesson. I think that they, um, this one is transmitting so quickly. I think they're, they're way more sophisticated in their medical capacity. The Chinese economy is seven times larger than it was during SARS. That's just 19 years or so, seven mm. times larger. So they're, they're, they're much more capable in terms of sophistication of their medical uh, capacity uh, they think they've learned that lesson. But this is a very big challenge for them. And unfortunately, it's been passed on to the rest of us to wrestle with. So I'd say I'd give them a maybe a C um, in terms of having learned the lesson. One one big lesson they haven't learned, they say now they've they've banned it, and that is this nasty trade in, in wild animals, which is mm -hmm. uh, hard to take if you love animals. It's hard on the Chinese ecology. And it's a vector for um, transmission of viruses. Uh, they've suspended that. Now they say they've banned it. If they're really smart, they'll stick with that ban, uh, whatever the cultural traditions, and just keep it that way because it's just another route for viruses to emerge. And then, then eventually they end up hurting us. Gordon Holden has been with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. Gordon, thank you for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.